Our special guest today is Professor Jamie Seymour from James Cook University here in Cairns, North Queensland, Australia, and he is well known as the Jelly Dude from Nemo Land. Jamie has been researching and working with venomous animals for over 20 years, and his big question that gets him out of bed every single day is why do animals have venom? Which brings me to today's episode, which is all about box jellyfish, the most venomous animal in this whole entire world towards humans. So get your cup of tea ready because today's chat is going to be wild. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans. Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent, stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following wild chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey, everyone, my name is Jodie Creek, and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course, their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home. And therefore, together, we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following wild chats. Awesome. Okay. Well, hi, Jamie. How are you going? Oh, Good fantastic. For a, for a Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Thursday. Oh, you scared <laughs> me there for a minute. <laughs> it's really hard to decide uh, what day it is, isn't it? Hmm, oh, it could be any day. That's right. They're just rolling one day into another at the moment, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It is a pleasure to have you here. So thank you so much for joining us. I know everyone in our group is really excited to learn a little bit more about um, now I'm going to say jellyfish, but we'll talk a, a little bit about the wording of that because I actually have a question about that wording of jellyfish. But okay. everyone, this is Professor Jamie Seymour from James Cook University up here in North Queensland in Cairns. And I even attended that university. It's awesome. I love being surrounded by um, the mountains and the environment. But Jamie, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is that you do, and you've actually got a really interesting photo behind you there. <laughs> introduce yourself. Yeah, well, that's my penguin that my daughter sent me. She was over in uh, overseas and she saw some and took a picture and there, that sort of has a soft place in my heart. Um, but yeah, as you said, Jodie, I'm out at James Cook University at Cairns, which, as you said, is an amazing university. It's probably one of the best campuses of a university I've seen anywhere in the world. It's just like someone dumped it in the middle of the rainforest and it's, it's great from that point of view. But for what I do, I'm actually what's referred to as a toxinologist, which is a groovy name for somebody that plays around with venomous animals. So in the grand scheme of things, yeah, I mean, I'm actually an entomologist by trade, so someone that worked on insects, but I've been a marine biologist since I was about two. And the thing that sort of really floats my boat at the moment is why do animals have venom? So if, if venom was so spectacular, every animal on the planet would be venomous. Well, that doesn't happen. If venoms didn't work, then there wouldn't be any venomous animals. And that doesn't happen. So I'm really interested in this trade-off as to what, what the advantages and disadvantages of venoms are. The beauty with that is that gives me carte blanche to work on any aspect of any venomous animal anywhere in the world. And it all is deemed as research. So it's great. The world is literally 
my oyster. So the, that's amazing. Yeah, Can I come as your assistant, please? I, look, it's a t- it's a tough job, and I and I say this to a lot of people when I'm talking to them is is I think I'm one of the few people in the world that gets up in the morning and goes, I actually really want to go to work. It's not I've got to go to work to earn money so I can keep alive. It's like I'd actually do. A, please don't tell the vice chancellor this, but I do what I do for free. It's just so much fun. I can see it in your face. You do the things that you're truly passionate about, and it's just so much fun. And the rest then just falls in around it. And I, I've just been lucky enough to fall into something that I really, really enjoy. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you've been doing it over like 25 years or so. You've been... Oh, God. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I've been up here for 24 odd years now. Yeah. So, I originally came up here to set up the campus for science mm. uh, for James Cook University about 22 years ago and came up, I was going to stay for three years, get the campus set up for science and then go. And then about three years ago, somebody went, oh, here's your 20 year medal. And I went, oh God, have I been here that long? Wow, I feel old now. So yeah. <laughs> oh, so you're definitely the man we need to speak to. And, and to actually wake up in the morning and be like, I'm so excited to work with venomous animals and I wonder what we're going to find. But you have been called, hang on, it's here somewhere. What was your name? You are the... Jelly Dude from Nemo Land. The Jelly Dude from Nemo Land. (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. But I do love that question of why are animals venomous? And it's a good one. As I said, I mean, it's... I think the other beauty is when I first started to work on that question, like lots of years ago... I thought, well, we should be able to answer this one. And I said, I'm 23, 24 years down the track and I don't have an answer, which is good because if I did, I'd be out of a job. But, <laughs> but the interesting thing is there are a variety of theories that come up for it, but they've all got big holes that you can drive a truck through. I mean, you know, like, but for example, why is the big box jellyfish the most venomous animal on the planet? On okay? the planet. On the planet, full stop. It's more venomous to humans than any other animal we know of. And people originally went, oh, it's because it's soft and fragile and it breaks. No, it is not. Box jellyfish are like, they're bulletproof. And in fact, you look at other jellyfish, which are a lot more delicate, they're nowhere near as venomous. Mm. So that one disappears. And then there was the theory that I actually looked at many years ago, going, okay, if you're a venomous animal, if you're going to produce venom, it's energetically expensive and costs you a lot of energy to produce venom. And I thought that. That's what everybody thought. thought, this is great. So we actually did this really neat experiment where we took some death adders, some Australian snakes, and we measured their metabolic rates. In other words, we measured how much they breathed and how fast their heart was going. Then what we did is we caught the snake, we milked the venom from the snake, and then put it back and looked at how much it was, we refer to it as upregulation. So how much it increased its heart rate to replace that venom. And what you find is over a period of about five or six hours, once you've milked them, their heart rate goes up by about 10 or 15%, which you immediately think that's actually, you know, if my heart rate's 60 or 70 normally, and I'm a snake and I upgrade it from 67, it's going to go to about 80. That's, that's reasonable. And maybe this is expensive. What was really interesting about the study is a couple of the snakes that we were doing it with shed as well. Oh. And then what we went was, well, let's go back and see how energetically expensive it is to shed. And what you find is keeping in mind that when you milk these things, they upregulate for about four or five hours by about five or 10%. When you shed, you upregulate by about 200% for about two weeks before you shed. Now that's expensive. So that would mean that if I was a snake and I'm going to upregulate, my heart rate is going to go from 60 to 180 for two weeks. Wow. Now I'm, now I'm flat out keeping my heart rate at 180 for three or four minutes, let alone for you know that period of time. So I said, there are all these theories, but they've all got holes in them. And so we don't have a good one yet. And, and I guess the other beauty is if you're going to work on venomous animals, Australia is the place to be. 
It has yeah, more, anim- ab- more venomous animals than anywhere else on the planet. And that just there fascinates me so much. Like, it's like, welcome to Australia. Just be careful. because <laughs> It's like, I don't worry about like falling off a cliff or bungee jumping. We've got snakes, jellyfish, crocodiles, all sorts of things, but uh, with dangerous animals. But today you're going to talk to us a bit about now, before I mentioned the word jellyfish, and you've been saying jellyfish, but there's so much like controversy out there. It's like, do you call them jellyfish or sea jellies? Because you know, there's that confusion where people go, but it's not a fish. So why are we calling it a jellyfish? So what do you call it? You've been saying jellyfish. Jellyfish. Well, I'm not going to go with sea jellies because you have basically freshwater ones as well. So if you're going to go there, you're going to have to go aquatic jellies. Okay. I quite like jellyfish. You know, to me, it works. It's great. We all all know it by jellyfish. Yes. Now you mentioned before that the box jellyfish is the most venomous animal on the planet. Towards, so towards humans? Absolutely. Towards humans. Okay. Because yep. here in North Queensland, so everyone who is from around the world or somewhere else in Australia, we are from Cairns in North Queensland. And we need to look out for not only our taipans and the snakes, you know, that are venomous, but also when we go to the ocean, especially during summer, is this is where the jellyfish come into it. So we've got the box jellyfish, the irukandji. Can you tell us a little bit about... Well, just talk to us about box jellyfish, irukandji in general, but why are they so venomous? What are jellyfish anyway? Okay. All right. So let's let's see if I can make technology work. Let's <laughs> share my screen here. If you see, let's try. Oh, here we go. We should be working now, I hope, with a bit of luck. So box jellyfish. So I'm assuming you can see that. Yep. Perfect. Excellent. Okay. So so if you look at it, and I'm just going to concentrate on big box jellyfish here at the moment, this thing called... Kyronex fleckeri. So here's a beautiful picture of a, a guy up in Weeper that I know fishing. And this is not a made up shot. This is actually the box jellyfish swimming past his leg. Okay. Mm. So these are, these are spectacular animals. If we have a look at, look at them. So here's our animal here. Now a big one of these animals is the size of a basketball. Okay. So they're quite big. They're square. They've got a series of tentacles that run off each side of them down here. So think of this as a big box, but I want you to think of these things as not for the want of a better term, it's these blundering blocks of blubber that float through the ocean. These are active visual hunters. So they have 24 eyes, which we'll come back to later, but they've got a set of six eyes here, another set of six eyes on the other side, another set of six eyes there, another set of six eyes there. So they have 360 degree vision. They can swim at the speed of an Olympic swimmer. So that's faster than I can swim. They sleep at night. So when the lights go down, they'll drop out of the water and go to sleep on the bottom. They have a metabolic rate, so their heart rate if they had a heart, but basically the whole body operates at at around about 10 times faster than any other jellyfish we know of. So put another way, if I stop feeding this animal, that means it loses 33% of its body weight, so a third of its body weight in 24 hours, which is pretty spectacular. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and then you add to that, that they are the world's most venomous animal from the point of view of humans. So a big sting from these guys, you get this immediate and intense pain. And, and think about it as a, somebody's taken to you with a red hot knife, dragged it across your skin, intensify that pain by about 10 and hold onto it for about 20 minutes. And you're coming close to the sort of pain that you get. It's, it's tears to the eyes type stuff. So it's immediate, intense. It leaves big stings on the body. You can see it. It's really obvious. And death happens within around about 60 to 120 seconds. Okay, and that's a big sting. So that needs about two meters of tentacle on your body for that to happen, okay? 
Um, and in Australia, we've had about 70 deaths in the last 70 years. Do not fall into the trap of thinking though, these animals are only found in Australia. The data we have suggests that somewhere between 50 to 100 people per year die in places like Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and those sorts of places. We just do a far better, better job of publicizing it than anybody else on the planet. So if you look at all that, that's what a standard sting looks like when somebody's stung. So you see these big red marks across their legs. And to give you an even better view, here's what happens. This is about two or three minutes after a sting. So you can see these big whip-like marks around the body. And that's where the venom gets into the system and the venom attacks your heart. So it's going from there straight to your heart, gonna cause cardiac failure, your heart stops beating, you're in a world of hurt and it's all over. So that's what we're looking at. So to give you an idea, and, and just I'm I wanna try and get across just how spectacularly brilliant these animals are. So this is me standing up looking into the water. So this is a, a shot from the water looking up and you can see this animal, the big box here, just swimming through. You can see the tentacles through the water. I mean, they are majestic animals. There is no doubt about it. And given the option, they will swim around you if you stand still. So they can see you and they'll swim around you. So you know, again, think of them as being spectacular. And this is some, and, and no one else in the world has seen this. This is a world first for you guys. This is some work we did at Weeper about two months ago. And what we started to do is use drones to try and see whether we could see these jellyfish in the water. So this is the edge of the beach here and out to sea. Now I've sped it up a little bit, but this is, so if we fly down the beach with a drone, looking for these animals, and you go, I wonder if I can see one. And all of a sudden, it'll become really obvious. There's one right there. So we can then put the drone over the top. So there's our animal. Look first off how close to shore we are. Not very far from shore, okay? Now, what becomes interesting is I've got the drone over the animal, and my offside, Rob, Rob Courtney, is now gonna wander in and grab the animal. So he can now see it. See how far, he's only in knee deep water. And that animal, if he got stung by that, would be big enough to kill him. So it gives you some idea on just how spectacular these animals are and how you don't need to be far offshore to come in contact with them. So really quite spectacular. Okay, so when they turn up, they can turn up in really huge numbers. This is a picture taken by a friend of mine, uh, black man named Yogi, Yogi Freud. And this is a picture from the Philippines that he took. Wow. So you can see him standing in the mangroves here. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, keep counting. I mean, when these things turn up, they can turn up in huge numbers. There's no doubt about it. So truly spectacular. And these guys are hunting in the mangroves for little fish. So what's interesting though is, and I think most people don't understand this, is how they actually produce and how they breed. Okay, so what you have here is a fertilized egg from a box jellyfish. This is a little animation we made, and this is the egg in the water. So if I play this little animation, so this is the egg, and inside that it's dividing. So I think this is a little tiny chicken egg, so it's a millimeter in size. What happens, it's dividing, the cells are dividing, and it's then gonna hatch out of this little egg in the water column. So it falls into this little ball of cells, it hatches out, and it then settles down on the bottom and it turns into what we refer to as a creeping polyp. So this is a coral, some coral rock here. It then crawls along, it's only small, it's only one or two millimeters, crawls along the bottom until it finds somewhere where it actually wants to live. So it crawls around and goes, well, this looks like a good piece of real estate, I'm gonna live here, and turns into this little tiny polyp that's about a, a millimeter in size with these tentacles, and then starts to feed on little fish and things, but it buds off these other little polyps. So it can bud off another one, and another one, but then some cue happens and it transforms from a little polyp 
into a little tiny jellyfish that's about a millimeter in size. It then breaks off, swims away, and then will grow one or two millimeters a day and grow into an adult box jellyfish that can be upwards of 30 or 40 centimeters in size. So wow. it's, yeah, it's got this quite sophisticated life cycle. And then you get males and females. So the males will shed sperm into the water. The females will shed eggs. They will fertilize and produce that little egg that we showed you. And the whole process starts off again. So that's how they breed. That's but, unbelievable. Yeah. And that's what these little polyps look like. So there's one here, another one there, another one here. And this one's starting to transform into a little jellyfish. And if we go a little bit further forward, you can see now here, here's a normal polyp with all the little tentacles. And this one's starting to transform into a jellyfish. You can see the little tentacles just here and here. It's gonna break off just through here, swim away and turn into a jellyfish. So wow. I said, don't think of these things, think of these things as really sophisticated types mm. of animals. Absolutely. So, <laughs> then just to really confuse the issue, so if I put this into a diagram, here's our adult jellyfish over here. This bit we know occurs out in the ocean along the beaches. This bit where the little polyps are, we think occurs up in the creeks. So you have a bit which occurs in the creeks and a bit that occurs out in the ocean. The big animals, the jellyfish themselves, that occurs between November and May. They spawn and die. And then the polyps grow from May through to November up in the creeks. So that's why you can swim between May and June, July, August, September, not have any worries about jellyfish because they've all died. And it's the little polyps up in the creeks that you need to worry about. And they're not a, a problem to us. So that's why we have this seasonal effects with jellyfish. So, so the box jellyfish only survive for one year? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. More, really, realistically, they probably only live. Well, giving them, keep in mind, they grow about two, on a good day, about two or three millimetres a day. Wow. Okay. And they get to about, when they're about 180, 200 millimetres in size, they're ready to spawn and breed. So, you know, two millimetres a day, that makes them 100 days. They spawn and die. So most box jellyfish live for about three or four months and that's it. And then wow, they die. Okay. I, w I didn't actually know that. I thought for some reason, yeah, the life cycle was a bit longer than that. Nope. Yeah. This, cool. this is, this is, you know, live fast, die fast. Yeah, <laughs> Everything's absolutely. done quickly with these guys. Yeah. So, and then you have all these different sorts. So we have this one up here, which is the big box jellyfish that we're talking about, Kynex fleckeri. That one stings and kills you. Mm -hmm. Then we have one that's very closely related to it that we get in cans as well. It just stings and hurts. Then you have this little tiny guy over here, and they only get about 25 millimeters in size. That's the Irukandji. Yep. That's going to sting a quitch in hospital. And then we have this other one here, which is probably about 30 or 40 millimeters in size, which looks similar to an Irukandji. It's going to sting and hurt. So the venoms vary between all of these things. It's really, I mean, really, really interesting as to what's going on there. So there's a variety in these things. So don't think we have only one type of box jellyfish out there. In cans alone, we have eight different types of oh. box jellyfish. Huh. Yeah. So I didn't know that. And then, of course, where do you find them? In Australia, pretty much from Broome on the West Coast all the way around to Gladstone on the East Coast. So, so Gladstone. I, yep. Okay, so it's, it's as far down as Gladstone. Yep. Yeah. And, and right. look, that, that's certainly for the big boxies. Irukandji are going, certainly now we've got them down at Fraser Island. Yes. Global warming, increased water temperatures, these guys are moving south. There's no mm. doubt about that. So this is part of the issues with global warming. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do, though, is come back and convince you that these are really spectacular animals. Okay, so this is a, a little a baby uh, box jellyfish. This one's actually irukandji. So you can see the body of the animal here. You can see the tentacles down here. This little thing here and this little thing here are the clusters of eyes. So remember I said that they had 24 eyes. 
So there's six eyes in here. There's six eyes in here. There's another six eyes there and another six eyes at the back. Okay. Now, if I go in and zoom in really close to that, what you then end up with is this thing here, which just, just bear with me. This bit doesn't look all that cool, but I'll go to the next one. And this is what it looks like. So what you have is one, two, three, four, five, six eyes. Okay. Now the top of the jellyfish would be up here. So this little slit there and that little slit there are what's referred to as slit eyes. And they just pick up the difference between light and dark. This one here and this one here is a cup eye. And again, it's just picking up this between light and dark. But this one here and this one here, and you can see, I don't know what, can you see that lens, that sort of white thing just here? Mm -hmm. That's the lens. So that's the lens in the eye looking upwards. This mm -hmm. is the eye looking outwards. Okay. So this now animal can look up and can look out and it has four, four sets of these. So it looks through itself. So it ends up with 360 degree vision looking through its own body. Okay. What becomes really cool is if I look at this here, now I've now cut these eyes out of the animal. This is one set here and this is another set here. Don't worry about this one. Just worry about this one here. And this is if I put the light in the dark. So if I put it in the dark and they're just like our eyes. So if I put you in the dark, your pupils, which is this bit here, relax and you try and look and get in as much light as you can. If I then shine a bright light in your eye, this is what happens. And I'll go back again. See oh, the pu yeah. pupil opening and closing? Mm. So when I put them in the bright light, their pupils close. Okay. So they do exactly the same thing we do. In fact, they have image forming eyes. This is an animal that's at the bottom of the evolutionary tree, has 24 eyes of which it can form images and they are active hunters. Hmm. So you know, don't think of them. And, and I said, they're out there catching fish. So this yeah. is what they're using their eyes for. So swimming around, looking for fish, find them, they sting them and you go from there. So, it amazes me that they can do that without a brain. Like without that's the interesting thing. And that's where people fall in. Again, there's all these myths with jellyfish where they go, jellyfish don't have brains. Most jellyfish don't have brains. That's correct. But box jellyfish are the exception to the rule. So if I go back to here, and if I go back up to here, he says, and these little sections in here, these and where the eyes are, there's a big cluster of nerves around these little things here. So these guys actually have four brains and they're all interconnected. So when you, as I said, when you think of jellyfish, they don't have brains, box jellyfish, a bit more sophisticated, they've got four brains. So wow. just, just to finish this up, I mean, the interesting thing is how they actually get the venom into you, which is really quite cool. So if I cut one of these tentacles off, so this is a tentacle here running across the screen, looking at a microscope, it has these series of, these little, think of them as little cylinders inside, little balloons with wound up hypodermic needles full of venom. And they're really, really small. So what happens is if I, if I take, there's the tentacle here, and if I put it under a microscope and basically give the jellyfish a whole heap of drugs to slow it down, because it's a really fast process. But if I play this, and if you look just in here, you'll be able to see in a moment, all these things firing off. Now, these are basically these hypodermic needles. So if I came in contact with this, these hypodermic needles would fire off. They would go into my skin and out the end of these little tubes would come venom. So if I look at that, here it is. Here's that tentacle again. You can see this shaft and you can see this venom coming out through the end. Okay. Amazing. So if I go back 
and run this again. That's it. This has been slowed down. So this shot at around about oh, 40,000-odd frames a second. So it's really, really fast, and we've slowed it down. So what you have is the tentacle just here, and all these things, these stinging organelles and nematocysts, which fire off and deliver the venom. So this is really cool. And that venom is really, really toxic to the extent that, um, as I said, it is the most toxic venom in the world that we know of to, for a lethality towards humans. Mm -hmm. There's no other venom on the planet that kills people as quickly as that. So just to finish this whole thing up, he says, when you see these things in the water, they are very, very transparent. Okay. Why they need to be transparent, we're not entirely sure, but one of the reasons we think is the things that feed on these are turtles. Mm. So what you want to do is if you're swimming through the ocean, you want to be, if you will, invisible to your prey. Okay. But you also want to be invisible to things that are liable to eat you, which is turtles. But the question you then got to ask yourself, and this is a beauty, is why aren't turtles affected by the mm. sting when they're eaten? Mm. And that one, I don't have an answer for. <laughs> That's amazing. That'll give you another 25 years, Jamie. At least, at least. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Seriously. So when you mentioned the brain of the box jellyfish, I do remember now actually listening to one of your talks ages ago and you mentioning that, but I, t I completely forgot. Hmm. Yeah. So they are very it's, sophisticated. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like when they designed jellyfish, they designed all the jellyfish that we know of. And then somebody sat down and went, how can we make it more sophisticated? We'll make it faster. We'll make it more toxic. We'll give it some brains. We'll give it the most venomous venom there is on the planet. We'll make it swim faster than everybody else. It was all just, let's put it all into one package. And here it is. And then- and it, How and, fast it swims. Oh, they are spectacular. To give you some idea, if I could train this thing to swim in an Olympic pool, so swim 50 meters and tumble turn and go again, and you pushed it over 1500 meters, so Grant Hackett, the Olympic, Australian Olympic swimmer, the guy that holds the world record for this, would swim 1,500 metres in around about 14 minutes and 30 seconds. A box jellyfish, if I could convince it to do that, would get out of the water about 15 or 20 seconds later. I mean, it's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it is true. We have got good data where we track these things and they have swum 30 to 40 kilometres in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, I, and, and, and not drifting, swimming in a direction that they want to go. Swimming. And you mentioned before in your talk that the box jellyfish will swim around you, like it can yep. swim around you. So is it doing that because it could be potential prey that it wants to eat or what, what is it doing? Is it just, it's, it, no, it, it it's just senses that there's a block in the way, so I'm going to go around you? No, it doesn't like, sense. It sees you. Sees. And, and it goes, okay, well, I'm swimming through the water. There's something in front of me that's too I'm big for me to around. eat. I'm just going to go around it. Yeah, so, okay. and what you find is when people get stung, it's usually for variety. The, the main reason is someone, and there used to be this old saying up here that, you know, you always walk, don't run into the water. Mm. So just imagine you run down, jump in the water and jump on a jellyfish. What's its immediate re reaction? I'm being paraded on. I'm going to attack, you know, for the want of a better word, fire off an attack. If you walk in slowly and give the animal a chance, it'll go, well, that's not what I'm feeding on. It will try and swim around you. But the problem you have for a lot of these animals is you've got the body of the animal and these tentacles can extend back two and a half to three metres in Whoa, length. Oh, that's yeah, like so, 10 foot for people. Oh, yeah. Know yeah. Well. yeah. So if you blunder into that, you know, you, if you blunder into it, the animal, you know, is A, you taste biological, so mm, you taste nice, but you're big and you're trying to attack me. So I'm basically going to react mm. and fire back and, and defend myself. It's really interesting when you see turtles eat these things. They scoff them down like marshmallows. 
And it's like, how do you get away with it? I just don't understand. And it's, it's interesting because everybody goes, oh, they're just immune and they cause, you know, and, but it's not. The very first time I started working with this, I was up at a, one of the indigenous groups up on the Cape and um, they were basically eating turtles. And one of the elders said, yeah, look, we eat the turtles. But during the summertime, you never touch the contents of the stomach. And like a typical, you know, idiotic scientist, I went, oh, why is that? You know, it doesn't make sense. And the elder said, well, there's a stomach from a turtle. Put your hand in its stomach, which is a dead turtle. Okay. Stuck my hand in. I got stung really badly up the hand. And he went, you won't do that again, will you? And I went, that. and the interesting thing out of it was, it wasn't that the turtle deactivated the tentacles from stinging. They just didn't fire off. They just, okay. When I put my hand in, it stung me. And it was like, wow, where is this going with this? It's, it's really interesting because nudibranchs do the same thing. So nudibranchs will feed on corals and, and, little, and things like that. They will take these stinging organelles, they'll eat them, they'll take them into their stomach, move it across the stomach wall, migrate it through the body. And you know the little fillery bits you get on the back of the nudibranchs, the gills, all those stinging organelles end up in the gills as defensive mechanisms. So there are ways in which you can do it. We have no idea how they do it. Absolutely none. But they do it. And I love it's really the natural cool. world. Oh, yeah. it just, like, my brain, it just goes... <laughs> yeah. Just when you think you've got it under control? Yeah. And, that, and, that's, and that's part of the beauty of my job. I, I, I can honestly stay hand on heart. I can come in and if there's a week goes by where I haven't learned something new, then it's been a bad week. Mm. And, and, and this is someone who's been working with these animals for 25 years. I can guarantee you, I mean, the, the girls that part of my staff that run the aquarium here, they took some pictures the other day of some little polyps from jellyfish. And I just looked at it and went, I've never seen that before. And they looked at me and went, what? I said, and they put it up on Facebook. Yeah, I, I saw went, it. Yeah, I'm just going, are you kidding me? Why haven't I seen that? And there's something that, you know, and I've been playing with this since for 25 years. And it says that Sally took this, just took this picture and went, this is cool. And I looked at it and went, whoa, hang on, wait, wait. Time out. That that's not right. But it's that's the joys of it. I mean, because you know, I've I've got this attention span of, of a small child, and I get bored really quickly. Me too. And, it's, and yeah, so it's something new, something new, something new. That's great. I love it. I really yeah, love it. Absolutely. And I love that you said that. Still, after all these years of working within the industry or, or researching and 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 all that, you're still learning something new. And I try and say this to the kids because I work a lot with students. And there is one misconception that because you work with wildlife or you're a researcher or you're a scientist, you should know everything. And you just explained that that, that the natural world shows you something else. But then, but then the curiosity of someone else to go, no, we don't eat that during that time because of this and then you're kind of like uh oh you just open up another rabbit hole for me now now i've got to go and research that and find that that out i love well, it just to give you another example that same indigenous community that i was up with we were sitting there and there's this big length length of beautiful sandy beach and i'm just going i'm going to catch so many jellyfish here. it's not funny and all the the kids were swimming in the water and i said to the elder what are you doing these kids are going to die and, and he looked at me as if to go you idiot, you white bloke, you know nothing. And I was like, yeah, I probably don't. And I said, but what happens? He said, no, no, they can swim there. It's okay. And I'm going, I've been dragging nets up and down this beach all week and caught jellyfish left, right and centre. And he's going, yeah, yeah, they can't swim down there. And I went, right? He said, if they go down there, they get stung and they die. And I'm going, well, how can they swim there? He says, no, no, they just can't swim there. And I'm going, you idiot. Yeah, come on, it's a beach. It took me two weeks of hard sampling and eventually came back and found out that there was a big freshwater lens that, so fresh water seeped up into the sand from there. And where the kids were swimming in the ocean was fresh water. 
and the wow. jellyfish didn't go there. And it was a matter of, if, if there's nothing else that I've learned out of all these years is to keep this open mind. Yes. And when somebody says something, you don't go, nah, that can't be right. You might think that. You go, okay, let's take it for what it's worth and go and find out whether we can disprove it. And Absolutely. That's, and that's when you start to learn this stuff. And this is when you go, ah, this is really interesting. So, and it, it's it. it just keeps the curiosity going. All yes. If you're not asking questions, one, you're not paying attention enough. And two, you're just set with, oh, yeah. that's just how it is. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. It's like the other day I learned that Papuan frogmouths and I think tawny frogmouths can eat cane toads. But I didn't know that before. But I don't know if really? it's true, Jamie, but I've actually read it somewhere. And then I'm like, hmm, okay, I'll do some more research on that. So I was doing more research and more research. And it was found that the Papuan and the Tawny Frogmouth are able to eat it whole, but there was nothing that I could find that backed it up. So my curiosity now is gone further. And now I want to know more scientific stuff and research. So just because I read something from the internet, by the way, kids, yeah. It doesn't mean it's completely true. And so you then take that curiosity and you go, is it true? I'm going to go and ask some questions and I'm going to do my own research and to find out. So exactly like what you're learning so much about it. And I just want to ask this big question, mainly because I live in North Queensland. I've got kids and I see yeah. this happening all the time, right? We've got nets and the nets yep. are still in. So they're in till the end of May. Is that correct? Um, who knows when they're going to pull them out? We have a little model that tells us when the season's going to end. And I can tell you at this stage of the game, the season ain't ending. So okay. my predicts we're going to have jellyfish around at least till the end of the May, but it's going to depend on what the weather does in the next couple of weeks. Yep. Ah, yes. So we've got that happening. And a lot of people will go swimming in the nets and think that they're completely safe from all jellyfish, including Irukandji. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? Because my understanding is if you swim in the nets, you swim, swim with a stinger suit on because Irukandji can still get through the nets. Is that true? Okay, let's just proceed all this by saying that in all the stinger, the swimmer enclosures that we have, we have never ever had a fatal or near fatal sting from a jellyfish, ever. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the nets are designed to keep out big box jellyfish the box. and they do that beautifully. Perfect. Unfortunately, the mesh size on them, I think it's 25 or 30 mils. Mm. A big irukandji is about the size of my thumb, which is about 20 mils in size. They can go clean through it, okay? And then once they get inside, it's nice and protected, they love it and they stay in there. But what you need to remember is irukandji are not there all the time. They come in, we think, from offshore and under certain conditions, they turn up, they've been there for three or four days and they disappear, or they may be there for a week or two or whatever. What we've done is if you historically go back and look you know, back in early 2000s, what used to happen was, you know, we'd watch people go into the water and go, oh, that person's been stunned. Maybe it's an Irukandji. Oh, we'll wait. Oh, there's another three or four people. Yeah, it could have been. Ah, oh, it'll be all right. We'll see what happens. And then, of course, that all come down with Irukandji okay. syndrome. And you'd go, well, we'll stop everybody getting in the water. And you'd wait three or four hours and go, should be safe. We'll just open the beaches again. And you let the people back in. Whoops, someone got stung again and you'd shut it down. So that was how, what used to happen. And so if you went back then, we got on average about 30 or 40 stings per year from Palm Cove alone. Okay, and it was that's that's why. Since then, the lifeguards and associated with us have come up with this system where they drag these little nets 
in the water each day, three times a day to check for the presence of uric energy. If they find them, they close the beaches and the beaches then they have to sample and it has to be a 24 hour window between samples when they haven't found an animal, they open the beach again. Since then, our average numbers of stings at Palm Cove have gone from around 30 to 35 to about two or three. Awesome. So yeah. it works really well. So you need to remember that these nets are not designed to keep Irukandji out. Mm. But having said that, Irukandji stings, although they hurt, we've only ever had two deaths from any Irukandji stings anywhere in the world. So if you get stung by one, what's probably going to end up happening is you're going to spend eight or nine hours in hospital, I'll come and see you, you'll have lots of painkillers and you wish you were never there, but you're almost certainly not going to die. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's good because some people sort of say, oh, no, it's completely safe. No. Um, but you've still got the Eric Angie being yeah, able to come through right. that. And yeah, then, and then a risk. It, do box jellyfish sleep? Yes. Yes, I thought so. Whereabouts would they be sleeping? Okay, so, so <laughs> we, we need to back that up a little bit. I termed the word sleeping for them about, 15, 18 years ago, where we did some studies and we tracked them and went, wow, these things stop swimming at night and fall out of the water column and go catatonic on the bottom. And, and I went, oh, box jellyfish are sleeping. We wrote this paper and literally the jellyfish world and the scientific world jumped on me and went, Seymour, you are an idiot. It is only the higher vertebrates that sleep. And I'm just going, okay, I'll just crawl under my log and just go back to sleep again. But they're sleeping, guys. Yeah, look what's happening. And their metabolic rate drops, everything. It wasn't until about five or six years ago that the people that do research on sleep in high vertebrates found this little paper that I wrote in the back of nowhere and went, well, hang on, what's going on here? Since then, they've now gone, yes, these animals are sleeping. There is a change in what's going on. They actually, these sleep scientists in the US that are working on humans want to come and do like ECGs on jellyfish. And it's like, yeah, okay, that doesn't quite work guys um, because you know, whatever, but we've done some really cool stuff. Like you can don't do this at home kids, but you can feed your jellyfish cocaine and heroin and marijuana and caffeine and you can keep them awake it's really cool but anyway so so they do actually sleep they do sleep they shut down okay and the reason they do that is remember i said they had this metabolic rate or this heart rate that's so much higher and if you stop feeding them they, they lose a third of their body weight in 24 hours you can't see the fish at night so you can't see your food so if you swim around at night all you're doing is burning up fuel so what do you do drop out of the water column and they go to sleep on the bottom so what they tend to do is try and find nice sandy areas where there isn't a lot of water movement and they drop out and just go to sleep. And they literally just sit on the bottom and go to sleep. This does not mean that people go, oh, it's safe to swim at night. Okay, humans sleep at night, don't we? Yes. So that would mean that if I went out at night, I'd never see a human. No, 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 no. <laughs> where do humans go at night when things are happening? They go to places where there's lights and there's lots of people. You go to pubs and clubs and things like that. Jellyfish do the same. So it's not unusual if you go down to the Palm Cove Pier around the lights at night, these jellyfish are swimming around the lights because mm. they've learned that the fish will be there and they'll be able to see them so they can swim around and catch them. Mm. So yes, they sleep, but that doesn't mean it's safe to go at night. And when they're sleeping, you can wake them up. Yeah. So if you go down and shine a light in their eyes, you'll wake them up. If you make a lot of movement in the water, they pick up the vibrations and they wake up. So again, Amazing. truly sophisticated animals. So what if you're walking along, you've had dinner, you're enjoying the nice walk on the beach, you've got an ice cream and you're suddenly walking along ankle deep in the water because, you know, it's, it's nighttime and, and, and a lot of people just think it's safe and okay. But it, it is quite risky, wouldn't it be? Like, especially it, with tentacles being so long. It is. From a big box jellyfish, not really, because you need two metres of tentacle contact on your body. 
So you're never going to get a total of two meters on your, on your feet. My problem with that, and it certainly was I was doing, is you're liable to come in contact with an Irukandji. Okay, right. And, and you only need half a millimeter or a millimeter of tentacle from an Irukandji and you're off to hospital. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a real gamble. Mm. You know, I, I take it from me. I mean, and, I, and I work with these animals on a daily basis. You know, I know what I'm on about. Am I walking ankle deep in the water at night on the edge of the beach in Palm Cove and stuff? Uh-uh. Sorry. Me neither. <laughs> I've been there, done that, got that T-shirt. Don't want to go down that track ever again. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that. I'll follow your advice since you're, since you're the expert. One thing that I just wanted to touch on was when you said as part of the life cycle of the jellyfish or the box jellyfish is up in the river systems. So how important is our rainfall? How, is it, how important is that, that whole cycle of the arrival of wet season? And when the jellyfish are more likely to be out into the ocean, into the salt water from the estuaries and the river systems, and how far up do they go? Is it do they go to freshwater? Just stick in estuaries. I've opened oh, up. Oh well, worms, yeah, no, no, no. Look, this is this is a brilliant question. It really is, and it, this is going to sound like I actually set this up before we started, but we didn't. Because when you go back and look at historically, well, let me rephrase that. What seems to happen, all the work that we've done shows that when you have a rainfall event, around about four or five days later, you get this influx of jellyfish or box jellyfish on the edges of the beaches. Now, it was originally thought that what happened is this rainfall came down, that stimulated those little polyps to produce a little tiny jellyfish and off it went. That's what it originally thought. That doesn't work because it takes around about 10 to 14 days from the moment you give it the cue, which we don't know what it is, before it produces this little jellyfish to bud off. And these things turn up out on the ocean like three or four days later, okay? So what we think happens is these things are sitting up in the creek and only in the estuarine areas, they don't go to fresh water, where we don't know, because it's really hard to sample up here. I've tried it before and been in sort of chest deep water, picking up rocks, looking for jellyfish, not found any, got in the boat, gone like five meters around the corner and there's two and a half meters of croc and it's like, not particularly smart, Professor Seymour, I don't think we'll do that again. So yeah, we're not entirely sure where they are, but the interesting thing is, if you go back and look historically, and Jack Barnes, who was a, a GP here in Cairns, who was the world leader in box jellyfish, and pretty much taught us everything we know. Uh, it, you know, he's got this set of diaries, and everything I think I found something new. You go back, and there'll be a throwaway line that he'll have in there somewhere. You just go, yeah, he knew that too. Oh, well, I'll just continue on. So he really had the whole thing wired. But when you go back, he used to go down to places like Mission Beach, and this is you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it was a big trip to get from here to Mission Beach. And he would see hundreds of these animals in the water. And the same thing off Cairns. There used to be like hundreds of them. We see that in places like Weeper and Broome, Darwin and places like that. But you don't see it all that much now here in the Cairns area. In fact, the numbers of big box jellyfish seem to historically have dropped. And my thoughts are that what's happened is during that time, what we've done is we've dammed up the rivers. So if you look at the Barren River, what we do is we regularly release water from that. It's either all dammed up or we're regularly releasing water for things like to let people go off and do, you know, kayaking and stuff like that. So you don't get this seasonal effect of rainfall. So what you don't get is this big pulse of water coming down and firing the whole thing up. So I think the way we've changed the environment, and people go, oh, this is probably a good thing. Maybe we've decreased the number of jellyfish that have been out there. And I said, people are probably going to go, well, that's probably a good thing. Well, in one respect, it might be. But remember I said that they're a staple diet for turtles. Yep. So we've now lost a major food source for turtles. And you know but this better than I. Turtles are already in a, a bad place. I've said this many times. And the only reason turtles are not extinct is they're so stupid to realise that they should be. 
Mm. Okay, they're not particularly smart. They eat plastic bags. They, you know, but we're now adding these other things to them. Like we'll just remove their food source. So, you know, it's the question that people ask all the time. Can we just eradicate the jellyfish? We're not going to be able to, but even if we could, why would we want to? Yes. Because there are, you know, the whole ecosystem is all intertwined. If I pull one string, everything unravels. Perfect. So that's what, we, that's what we've got to be careful of. I mean, mm. you know, yes, it may be a, an issue for us, but it's like snakes and things. What we need to do is learn to live with them. Mm-hmm. You know, again, go back 30, 40 years ago. I know when I was a kid, there'd be a snake turn up in the backyard. The first thing my dad would do would either go to the 12 gauge and blow its head off or smack it over the head with a shovel. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and nowadays, if, if anybody even suggested that, and everybody does suggest that, you need it. But the number of snake bites we have now, even though there's more snakes, is less than what we had back then because we've learnt to live with snakes. So you don't, you know, we've all learnt now, don't pick up a piece of corrugated iron and stick your hand under there and see what's happening. You know, we know where snakes are, we know how they operate, we know what we should do. And this is the same sort of thing we need to do with jellyfish. We're getting there, but not mm. quite quickly enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think exactly what you said and what we've been learning about doing all this stuff in our private group at the moment, but also within schools. So years four, five and six, especially year six at the moment is learning about the impact on our creatures and natural world from like cyclones and other environmental impacts. But it's not just the cyclone as itself, exactly what you just said with the blocking of the water and the dam and stuff, you know, it is controlled and that is for human reasons. And so we come in with our human reasons and our human kind of fear and we try and change things for human reasons. And so when we're doing that, we don't really know the impact until years and years later and that's the same bite that we all have with the estuarine crocodile and so forth as well what impact will that have if they leave the mangrove system and how would that even affect the great barrier reef or that that flow on effect like like really but but the kids today like for me i may not see that effect but my children will and my children's children will and then they'll have the stories exactly like what the story you just talked about with the snake we all have a story based on what it was like when our parents were kids or grandma or grandpa. And and what we're trying to do is educate everyone, create that spark, that curiosity, but also understanding how everything is totally intertwined. And what you just said is that they're not, the box jellyfish is not only food for other animals, but what other role do they play? Because surely there's more. Like surely there's, it's not just for the turtles what are they doing up in the river system what is what sort of role do they play within the estuaries and the and the mangroves and the oh my goodness it's opened up a can of worm for me now oh absolutely yeah i mean and it could be that you know one of the fish that they feed on they keep those fish numbers under control if you're not there then those fish bloom in numbers and then for example they might eat all the seahorses up there Mm. so we lose the seahorses i mean everything's interconnected and they said it's not until you pull one string and you just watch everything go and fall apart and then it's too late. I mean, it's like with the turtles. The problem mm-hmm. is what we do to turtles now, we don't see the effect until 15 or 20 years down the track. And it's too late then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, and it's one thing to go, oh, yeah, it's fine. There's still plenty of turtles. But, you know, a turtle may live for 50, 60, 70, 100 years and breed. So, you know, if it's not being successful now, they're still going to be around for 20 or 30 years before they all of a sudden then just Drop. disappear. Yes, yes. And then we Absolutely. can't fix it. It's too uh, late then. Yeah. Yep. Totally, totally agree. And until more and more of us are talking about this and educating properly about that, especially to our students and our children, because they're the ones that will carry that on and hopefully also be the voice that we need. 
because yes. anyone yes. can listen to you and me and then they'll be like, nah, whatever. But it's the kids who then go, Jamie was talking about this thing and they're at the dinner table and they're yarning away and the next minute you know everyone's on Google and they're trying to find out, is that true? Do they really have a brain? And the next minute you know they're telling the shopkeeper at the shop and she's like, "Mm, what have you been eating today? And it's created like this flow-on effect. Um, So I absolutely love every single thing you've said here. And we've actually got some questions that have come through because I put a thing up there that we couldn't stream into the Facebook page. So I've got here... Well, Cooper asks, what's the most dangerous jellyfish to humans? So, Cooper, I hope you've listened this far <laughs> because it's the box jellyfish. And we now know that there's a few different species of box. Well, it's not quite as simple of an answer as that, though, Jody. I mean, and, and it's a great question. Which one is the most dangerous? And it depends on how you're going to refer to as danger. danger so, if we're looking yeah. at, yeah, if we're looking at killing people, Absolutely, big box jellyfish. But if you were to look at the people that are, which particular species of jellyfish stings more people than anyone else in the world, in Australia alone, no, no, sorry, the world, we think we have something like 15 million stings from blue bottles every year. I was going to say blue bottles. I've been stung by so many. 15 million, yeah. I mean, we haven't had any deaths in Australia, but we have deaths overseas from them. So it depends on how you look at that from that point of view. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Because I've been stung plenty of times as a kid. I grew up down in Brisbane. We swam yep. a lot at the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast and blue bottles was my biggest fear. <laughs> now, now here's, a, here's, a, here's a really good question for you. So, and, and anybody that's spent any time in the water knows about blue bottles, yeah? And, yep. and I think they're... Now, I'm going to go, for example, let's, let's take a, an animal that everybody's reasonably familiar with, an elephant. Yep. Do you know how an elephant breeds, Jody? And I'm assuming the answer is going to be, yeah, you know, an elephant breeds. Okay. And that's a reasonably well-known animal. Given that there are 15 million stings from blue bottles a year throughout the world, and anybody that's spent any time in the water knows about blue bottles and Portuguese men of war, how do they breed? And science doesn't know. Oh, I'm glad Mm -hmm. I said I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Now, now if I was to tell you, just, just imagine if I said to the royal, we don't know how elephants breed. Someone would be out there tomorrow. They'd be throwing a truckload of money trying to work out how elephants breed. We don't know how blue bottles breed. Wow. We, in fact, don't know where they come from. You find them out in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds out at sea and they blow in shore, but then six, 12 months later, they turn up back out at sea again. How, how do they get there? Wow. We, have no idea. we have no idea. There's still so many jobs for people out there. So get oh, researching, yeah. everyone. <laughs> get to uni. Get there. Do your PhD. <laughs> we need to know this information. <laughs> um, Gracie has said here... Um, she said, are jellyfish likely to sting you if you are just swimming near or close to them? So hopefully Gracie has also seen how long maybe some um, tentacles are. Yep. Look, great question, Gracie. The short answer is if you don't come in contact with the tentacles, you can't get stung. Okay. But they will not sting you deliberately. In other words, they don't sit in the water and go, oh, there's someone I can row over there and sting them and scare them off. It's always because you blunder into them and they come in contact with you by accident. Mm. Uh, we've got one here from Brett. He said, how far out to the reef do box jellyfish go? So how, oh. what, how, how, what, what's the furthest kind of distance out yeah. in that outer reef? Okay, so if we're talking box jellyfish, so if we, and if, if we're saying box jellyfish, we're referring here to the big box jellyfish. Distance from shore is dependent on the depth of the water. Okay, now what I mean by that is the vast majority of our offshore islands so Green Island, Fitzroy, uh, Lizard Island, things of that nature, do not have big box jellyfish on them. Because as you go out, the water goes below about 10 or 15 metres, and box jellyfish, when they move offshore, go on the bottom, tend to. And once it gets that deep, they pull up. 
and so they tend to be close to shore. There are some notable exceptions. Hinchinbrook, Maggie Island, because oh. both of those islands have um, shallow water connections to the mainland. Right. Okay. So then if you look at other box jellyfish, things like Irukandji, okay, we have uh, records of a cruise ship 800 nautical miles. So that's over 1,300 kilometres offshore where they decide, and this was many, many years ago, that what they should do is pump all the salt water out of their pool and pump in some new salt water from the ocean. Yeah, something about 40 or 50 people got stung. Oh. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so they don't do that anymore. <laughs> I can't even believe you said that. I can't believe that, that happened. Wow. That's amazing. Owen here. Oh, you've got to meet Owen, Jamie. He's this cool, beautiful little little guy. He's like five years old. He runs Owen's Wildlife Adventures. Check him out on Facebook. He has um, asked us, or he said, I would like to know if all the toxins in the jellyfish are similar. Yes, some worse than others, but are they made of similar parts? This is from <sighs> a five-year-old. Yep. Beauty. Okay. Short answer to your question is no, they are not similar. They are very, very different. So the way to think of this is think of a venom in a jellyfish or a venom in any venomous animal as a soup, which has got peas and corn and carrots and potatoes and bits of meat. So depending on which soup you pick up, will have different components to it. And then they will mix those components together for different things. So for example, in a big box jellyfish venom, it has a component that attacks your heart. It has a component which attacks the skin. It has an opponent that can tax the other thing. And then it has a whole heap of these other components. Like big box jellyfish have got like, I think about 250 odd different components to their venom. We know what two of those components do. We have no idea what the others do. Wrong wow. clue. We've looked wow. at it. I haven't got a clue, but they're there. So yeah, again, think of them as sophisticated soups. Amazing. Amazing. A big soup. <laughs> it's 250 parts of that. Yep. Sol would like to know what do jellyfish eat and do they all eat the same thing? Definitely not. They all eat different things. So by and large, 99.9% .9 of jellyfish are carnivores. So they're eating things they can catch, which are plankton and fish and little bits and pieces in the, the ocean. But like corals, some of them have algae associated with them. So things called zooxanthellae. So they will photosynthesize. So they'll take the light and photosynthesize and use that and produce food from that. But the vast majority are carnivores and they eat different sorts of things. So, you know, depending on where they are and what they're doing. So I said, box jellyfish are feeding on particular types of fish. Other ones, feed, other jellyfish float through the ocean and pick up little plankton and things in the water. So it varies from, from jellyfish to jellyfish. Amazing. Here we have, Sol would like to know, what is the biggest jellyfish? Oh, okay. The biggest jellyfish, the biggest that I've seen or the biggest jellyfish? Uh, I think he just said, what is the biggest jellyfish? So maybe give us both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most of your, or the, the really big ones are in cold water. So there tends to be this correlation with the colder the water, the bigger the jellyfish and the longer they take to, to grow. So there's some Antarctic species that are probably, they would be two, maybe two and a half meters across the body of the animal. So the bell, and then they've got hundreds of thousands of tentacles off the back end. I've seen a couple of species and things called lion's mane jellyfish that would have been uh, they'd be a metre, a metre, 1.2 metres across. Um, so, yeah, they can get reasonably large. Yeah. Mm, that's big enough. And we've got here, do all jellyfish sting humans? Is there the potential for all jellyfish to sting humans? Yes and no. <laughs> all jellyfish have these stinging organelles that I was talking about, these things that fire off. 
in some of them, remember what we showed you that video and they had those shafts that came out? Yes. In some of them, the shafts are really long and some of them they're really short. So the really short ones can't go through the calluses on your hand. So the venom can't get inside. The really long ones will go through. So for example, the standard one that people see out here on the Great Bay Reef and that's common right throughout the world is these things called moon jellies. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they're sort of round like this. They've got four horseshoe things in them. You can pick them up and people go, oh yeah, they don't sting at all. They actually do, but your the hands, the skin on your hands is so thick that it won't get through. If you actually, and don't try this at home kids, but if you actually rub them on your lips, they will sting, you'll feel it because you, the, the skin on your lips is a lot thinner. So all jellyfish have the potential to sting, but a lot of them, the shafts aren't long enough so the venom doesn't get into you. Oh my goodness. Yeah, do not try that at home, please. <laughs> yeah, that's a disclaimer. Not that I've ever done it, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I, I would probably believe that you have done it. Um, <laughs> uh, Owen, Owen here and Oliver have a very similar question, which boys, we have actually answered that with Jamie's talk, but they just wanted to know, Oliver was just saying, do jellyfish lay eggs, but do all of them. So with the cycle that you showed us with the box jellyfish, is that the cycle of all jellyfish though, or just yes. the box? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So they all shed eggs and sperm in the water. Well, some of them, some of them brood, but we won't worry about that. The vast majority shed eggs and sperms in the water. They have this little uh, pole that settles out. There's some differences, but basically that whole cycle is the same. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And Owen, your question was um, answered in there as well about breeding. But Owen also had an interesting quick question about the blue bottles. So blue bottles, uh, you know, when they're coming through and they get washed into shore, is it, are they coming in due to the wind and the waves? Is that yes. what has been found? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they, they don't want to be inshore there because it's going to get blown up in the water or in the sand and die. So yep. what happens is they, their floats get hit by the breeze and blow them inshore. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How many different types of a jellyfish are found in Australian waters? So that's from Gracie. Oh, Gracie, give me a question I can answer. <laughs> that, that's, look, that's a really good question. And the short answer is we don't know. You are looking to, to and, and I'm going to try and answer this in, in a way that there's probably about three to 400 species of jellyfish throughout the world, maybe double that. So there's not many in the grand scheme of things. And I would, I'm gonna hazard a guess here, probably 150, 200 in Australia max. But having said that, we haven't looked all that hard for them. And certainly as I said, you know, we found eight species off cans alone of box jellyfish that were unknown before we started working on them. Wow. So I suspect there's probably double that number easily. We just haven't looked for them. Mm. But there's not millions and millions and millions of them. There'd be under a thousand of, mm. of jellyfish throughout the world. Okay, wow. Yep, that's still a lot of species. <laughs> yeah, in the grand scheme. I mean, when you look at it, if you looked at insect species. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 75 to 80 million throughout wow. the world. And still yeah. finding. And exactly. Still finding. Exactly. Yeah. So even if we triple the number of jellyfish, we're well, yeah, not having a dent in the numbers of, of insects that are out there. True. So Isabella says, why are jellyfish see-through? So you did touch on that in the talk as well and the theory behind that there. But someone did ask a really interesting, I'm not sure if you can answer this uh, in, in, in a really quick, because I know you have to go, but what is the difference between a jellyfish and an octopus? Okay, cool. Okay. That's so a good the, question. Yeah, yeah. So both Jude and Lily. Yep. Jude and Lee, great. So they're both what's referred to as, as invertebrates. So they don't have a backbone like we do. Okay. So jellyfish basically are at the bottom of the evolutionary tree and your octopus are higher up. So octopus have a heart, they have eyes, similar to jellyfish, but they also have a variety of other bits and pieces. They have brains, true brains, 
and a variety of things. So basically they have a different set of muscle systems as well. But when it comes down to it, jellyfish are primitive in that, and again, box jellyfish are slightly different, but they have a mouth where food goes in, gets digested in their head, and then they spit things back out through their mouth. Whereas us higher vertebrates and higher animals have a mouth, goes into our stomach, we digest things there, and we basically poo things out the other end. Okay, so basically octopus are higher up there, and so they're more sophisticated from that point of view. So they've got a whole variety of other bits and pieces which could take me like 10 or 15 minutes to explain, mm -hmm. but by and large, they're a lot higher up the evolutionary tree. That can be their homework. They can Absolutely. go check that out and do some research, use a book, not just the internet, guys. Go to the library and try that out for what it is. Lisa, she's local here in Cairns. She's got a really good question here. It's that word jelly is always found around the islands such as Fitzroy or Green Island, or is this a new thing and why? So you were saying that box jellyfish aren't necessarily found around those particular Green Island, Fitzroy and Lizard Island, but there's the Irukandji. Irukandji certainly are. Yep. Yeah. So uh, look, it's a hard question to answer because we obviously can't go back mm. you know, a thousand years and sample, but there is no reason to think that these animals have not been there since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. uh, since the coral reefs were there uh, and have been there ever since. So yeah, there is nothing that we've done or we've seen in the last you know, 20 years that we've been working on them that has impacted on the number of these animals as, as for increasing their numbers that are there. Having said that, there is some suggestion that the production of break walls, rock break walls and marinas and things gives a hard substrate. So something for these little polyps to settle out on. So there's, there's a really strong body of work now coming out and going, okay, we're seeing increases in jellyfish numbers in certain areas. And one of those reasons may be we're producing a home for them to go and live in. So that's a possibility. Cool. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, we could literally talk forever. And Jamie, I know you're really busy. You need to go do your research or maybe go home. <laughs> but you have some amazing projects. Everyone, if you would like to go online, you can find Jamie at, uh, well, I can still watch your Nature of Science YouTube clips. So the Nature of Science YouTube videos, everyone, please jump in and have a watch of them. They are amazing. I'll put the link in the group for you as well. And also, I was just, you know, reading about you just through JCU, James Cook Uni, if they want to know a little bit. You know, it was probably dated back to six years ago there, Jamie. But, <laughs> but you have some exciting projects that you're working on and things that are going to be hopefully used in education soon. So, you know, looking forward to seeing what you come up with there. Yeah, thanks. Look, we're really keen, as you, know, as you said, as you're alluding to, we've actually got a marine research facility out here, a big aquarium system that we do our research in, and we're throws at the moment of trying to get some live streaming cameras from there out to the world so people can have a look and see what we're doing. So watch this space, uh, this Facebook page called JCU Eduquarium that you can jump onto as well, and that'll show you what's going on there with what the team's doing and what we're doing, those sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah. drop on, drop us a line. If there's anything will help out, more than happy to chat to you. Excellent. I'll put that link to the Eduquarium as well in there. So Jamie, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And to be honest, I would love to book you in weekly, but I know that you're too busy out there. <laughs> oh, look, yeah, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll do it. So next, I, next time I think we should talk about stonefish. I, I want to talk I about was, stonefish. Yes, that is exactly what I was about to say. I was like, can we do stonefish next Could, time? Because yep. they are fascinating. And also the research behind what you've been yep. doing. And because everyone, just to let you know that Jamie is not only like researching just to put some information out there to the world about the animals but he does play a huge role in learning supplying venom for anti-venom and also the research behind what venom can help in the medical world so uh, all sorts of things Jam. i don't know if i explained that right but 
No, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I, I think <laughs> what you do is absolutely amazing and so important for science and so important for medicine as well. So I think sharing that with especially kids at school would be really cool. So I'd love to have you back again. But otherwise, have a great afternoon. Thanks, Jody. Yeah, no, look, we'll come back again. Not a problem. We'll talk stonefish and then after that we can talk cone snails. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to book you in next week. <laughs> Done. All right. Thanks, Jody. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Catch up.